Are we still awake? Are we ready? Yes. <laughs> Let's say one quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, it's so good to be here on this Sabbath day. You are so good to us. You are so holy, so much bigger than us. Yet you come down and you hear us, you love us, and you're here with us now. We pray for your spirit in our hearts. May you remove distractions. May we be able to focus on what you may have to say to us. Please take my words that are nothing, and may they minister to someone today as they've ministered to my heart. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a beautiful, summery day in the upstate New York town where I was raised. Perhaps like this afternoon is supposed to be. I'm so excited. I have an older brother, Roger. He is two years older than me. And at the time, Roger was about five or six, which would have made little Lori three or four. And that day, my brother had earned the privilege of using the handheld grass clippers. So maybe about this big handle, blades on the front. So Roger had earned that privilege of using those grass clippers. And of course, he felt very important about that. And so he was going around the front yard, um, trimming the grass around the porch, around the sidewalk that went from our um, driveway up to the front of the house. So he's running around trimming the grass while little Lori, the adoring little sister, is just trotting along with him. After he had finished what he was initially doing, he decided that he was going to fill his wagon that attached to his toy tractor. He was going to fill that with grass. I thought that was a marvelous idea, and I, of course, wanted to help him. And that is where conflict developed. As I started ripping the grass out of the yard and shoving it in his wagon, he's yelling at me, no, I'm clipping the grass, don't, you can't do it. And so we started to argue. And in the course of that argument, as I'm shoving grass into the wagon, my hand goes right in front of those grass clippers, slicing into this hand three of these fingers. Now, as a parent now, I've thought of my mother that afternoon. She was enjoying a, a peaceful moment while her angelic children were in the front yard. She was enjoying a peaceful moment to herself, puttering around the kitchen, enjoying the moment, and then suddenly that peaceful moment is shattered by the screams of her, her little girl. And I remember vividly running across the side of the yard, up the back steps, into the kitchen, blood flowing down my hand and my arm, bursting into the kitchen. My mother immediately put my hand under some cold water, and the rest of it's somewhat of a blur. I don't remember if my father was home or if my mother had to drop off my brother at grandma's who was down the road, but I do know she whisked me off to urgent care. And there I had stitches, which unfortunately is another vivid memory because as I laid there and the doctor was stitching my hand, he hit a point that he had not numbed. And instead of backing off and making sure my hand was numb, he continued to stitch. And so I have this memory of, again, screaming as my mother and the nurses held me down. My mother told me that she had some choice words for this doctor who did that to me. But at the end of the day, it was okay. I don't have any scars. But what started as a very peaceful day did not turn out that way. And that is the lot 
of life on this planet, is it not? We have a routine that is going on, and then suddenly, as my father says, a monkey wrench is thrown into it, and something happens. It may be a phone call about a family member. It may be a car accident. It may be a baby dropping a five-pound weight on his foot. That happened in our household with Nathaniel. Um, so many things just happen out of the blue, and suddenly, chaos, tragedy has struck. I vividly also remember the time my mother got a phone call from my grandma that her aunt and uncle, my mother's aunt and uncle, had been in a car accident, and her uncle had been killed instantly, and my aunt had injuries. And so in, in that moment, split second, their lives were completely changed. It is the lot of this sin-darkened world that tragedy is but a moment away. And we see this in the Bible all over the place. There are many tragic stories in our Bible. We can start at the beginning with Adam and Eve, of course. It's a tragedy for all of us that they had to leave the Garden of Eden when they sinned. But also, Adam and Eve's firstborn son murdered his brother. We, we know these stories and we, we read them to our children, but I think oftentimes we don't stop and think that these were real people with real emotions and feelings like us. And what a tragedy. Your children, one of them kills the other one. What painful lives Adam and Eve led. Who was Jochebed? Do you know who Jochebed was? Moses' mother? We don't know when exactly in the timeline they find out, but either she's pregnant or has her baby and learns that the government has decreed that all Hebrew boys are to be killed. Her baby boy the government wants to kill. Can you imagine? Do you have a son? A brother? Can you imagine? Talk about a crisis. Hadassah, who becomes Esther, was an orphan. What happened to her parents? We don't know, as far as I know, what exactly happened to her parents. But she was an orphan. As was the little girl that we read about, the little maid who ministers to Naaman and his wife. She was an orphan, or at least taken from her family, probably through war, taken to another land. That is a tragedy. The prophet Hosea has a wife who leaves him and comes back, leaves him and comes back, leaves him and comes back. Think about the trauma that Joseph went through and Jacob, his father, multiple times in Jacob's life, we read that he's fearing that his brother is going to kill him. Then his, one of his wives dies and then he believes that his one son dies, later founds out that it's his other sons who sold his son. What a life he led. Think of the family dynamics of Lot. Of course, there's the leaving of Sodom and Gomorrah and that tragedy. But if you keep reading about the story of Lot after Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not very good. We won't go into detail now, but it's not very good. I could go on and on with the different family crises we read throughout Scripture. It's actually a comfort to us, in my opinion, that we have so many of these stories. Because each of these stories, we read about the grace of God in those different situations. It is through crisis that our character is revealed. None of the situations I've mentioned would have had much warning. A, a child is wounded, a, a car runs through a stop sign, the, the law is made about the baby boys. These all happen in a moment. You couldn't have necessarily prepared for them. These are all moments in time, and our personalities, our characters, our frames of reference all dictate how we respond. 
I love to read biographies. We have a bookshelf pretty much filled with biographies of different stories um, I've collected through the years. And it's these stories of, of people going through very difficult times that are so inspirational to read, how God helps them through difficult times. However, the reality is that most of us do not have a story written about us. Most people do not, and many people crumble under tragic circumstances. They crumble during those difficult times. So what makes the difference? What makes the difference? What creates that inspiring story that we all want to live and that we all want to read and to be? Our scripture reading, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28, verse 16, that was read so well for us by Giovanna. Isaiah 28, 16, and I'm going to read here the uh, New King James Version and then compare it to a couple others. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, the word not act hastily or act without thought, in other translations, in the NASB, it says will not be disturbed, will not be disturbed. And the NIV that Giovanna read says the one who relies on it, the cornerstone, will never be stricken with panic. So panic, to be disturbed, to act without thought. I love that imagery, especially of the word panic. So the Bible is saying, those who rely and trust on that foundation, that cornerstone, will not be stricken with panic. What is the foundation? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a foundation as an underlying base or support. It's that which, under a building like this, keeps it stable when there are storms about, when there's an earthquake, with these different things. It, its purpose is to keep the building stable. And of course, what is our foundation? What is our foundation? We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we read what is to be the believer's foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And where do we read about the apostles and prophets? The word of God. The foundation of the word of God, the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Our foundation is the apostles and prophets found in the Word of God, and our cornerstone is Jesus Christ. If we flip back to our, um, our scripture reading, I'll read it again, now filling in what our foundation is. Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, the apostles and prophets, the word of God, a precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Together, it's a sure foundation. Whoever believes and relies on it will never be stricken with panic. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise. Have you ever been stricken with panic? 
Have you ever been panicked? I've shared before the time that I called 911 when Lily was a baby because I was stricken with panic. So I won't tell that story again. But I was trying to think if I could recall a time when my dear husband Charles has been stricken with panic. And there wasn't too much that came to mind. He's a pretty steady character. But there was one instance where Charles had ordered, he believes it was a camera online, He had ordered a camera online, and he was waiting for the package to come, and it was an expensive camera, a nice camera. And when the package came, it was an envelope. Generally, a camera can't fit in an envelope. And as he opened the envelope, he took out a piece of cardboard that had a picture of a camera on it. He he had been scammed. And if you know Charles, he's not normally speechless, but he was speechless. And he stood there staring at that picture, just rendered uh, useless. He could not move. He did not know what to do. He was panicked. And his brother lived with us at the time, and brother Josh, okay, well, let's file a report. We should be able to figure this out. But it it seemed like a good half an hour that Charlie did not know how to function because he was so panicked over what potentially had happened to him. So if you're stricken with panic, you cannot make rational decisions. You cannot function. You can't care for others if you are stricken with panic. And that is not God's will for us. God has not given us the spirit of fear. No, 2 Timothy 1.7 says he's given us the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. God doesn't want us to be rendered non-functional by fear. Now, this is a song that I'm sure we all know. We sing it very often in Sabbath school with the younger divisions. The wise man who built his house upon the rock. I will not sing it for you. We'll turn to that scripture in Matthew chapter 7. I'm sure you're all familiar with this parable of Jesus, but we can always gain something new from the word of God. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. This is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7. Verse 24, the Bible says, Jesus' words, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who, who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What is the difference between these two men? What is the difference between these two men? They both hear the word of God, but only one does something about it. They both hear the word of God, but it's the wise man who does something about his faith. He's actively following Jesus. He's applying the word. He's living by faith. And in so doing, the wise man is building his house or his life on a firm foundation, the rock of ages. And so when the trials come, as they will, that is the nature of this life. We will have trials. When the trials come, the wise man's house, his life, can weather the storms. His faith can weather the storms. He can stand tall in the face of oppression. The wise man is faithful and lives an inspirational story. 
The foolish man is the man who has no experience with Christ. He's here, he hears the word of God. Perhaps he goes to church every week. Perhaps he's gone to church his entire life. But he has no foundation. He has never stepped out and lived by faith, following God's will over his own feelings, his own desires. He just lives however he wants to live. And when the difficult times come, his faith is crumbled because he has no foundation. It is superficial. He has had no real experience with the God of the Bible, and he has no foundation to stand on. Which man are you? The trials of life will come. Do they not? Have we all experienced trials in this life? We have. Satan attacks us and those around us. Satan wants to make our lives hard. However, God uses those trials for good. He uses them to refine us and make us more solid for the next thing to come along. He uses these moments to polish the building of our character. What Satan intends to destroy us with, God wants to use to build us up stronger. We see this in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, toward the end of our Bibles, not far before Revelation. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 9. 1 Peter 1, 6, the Bible says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glorify at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter there mentions the imagery of being tested by fire, like gold tested by fire. Refining with fire is one of the oldest methods of refining metals, like including gold. In ancient times, this form of refining involved a craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities that would rise to the top. These flames would reach temperatures in excess of 1,000 degrees Celsius, which is 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Very, very hot. This job was definitely a dangerous occupation for the gold refiner, but it was the only way to ensure a pure, undefiled, and brilliant product. God wants us to be pure and undefiled and to shine brilliantly for him. Malachi 3 also speaks of this refining process. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Malachi 3, 2 to 3. Malachi 3, 2 to 3, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness." God wants to make us a shining witness for him. He is so good and has our best interest in mind. And that is one of the most beautiful things I find about our God, how he uses these times of trial and crisis in our lives for good. 
Does anyone else agree that when you look back at your life, oftentimes it's during those difficult times that you grew the most as a person? I know that's definitely true for me. You grow through those difficult times. God has to allow the devil to do his thing on this earth. But how frustrated Satan must get when he sees God turn what Satan intends to be the destruction of a person into a beautiful lesson of redemption. Satan must have rejoiced when he saw Moses killing the Egyptian and then running for his life. He must have rejoiced when Hadassah's parents died. He rejoiced when Joseph was sold into slavery, when Daniel was torn from his family. He rejoices every time that we fall down in despair. However, Satan's tune must have changed when Moses suddenly came back as the deliverer of Israel years later when Hadassah as Esther approached the king with courage, when Joseph stayed faithful through each twist and turn of his life, and the Pharaoh then proclaims him prime minister of Egypt, when that angel went into the lion's den, Satan trembles when God's people stand up in faith. When I was 15, I broke up with a boyfriend. There's a lot I could say about this, a lot I could say about this, but... It's not really the time and place, but it was a very, very difficult time. It was the hardest time in the life of teenage Lori. I broke up with this boy. Uh, I was at camp meeting in New York State, which is a long 10-day camp, and the boy had come up for a day, and it was that day that I broke up with him. It was an awful day. It was the worst day of my life to that date. But at the end of the day, the boy went home, and I still had a couple days left um, at camp meeting, and oh, I felt so good. I knew I'd done the right thing. I felt free, I felt good. But after those couple of days, I had to go back home, and I had to face reality. And I remember vividly walking up the stairs in my house, and I entered my bedroom, and I stopped there in the, bed, in the doorway. And as I looked around my room, my breath just went from me. Because, of course, in my room are pictures, are gifts, are mementos of this relationship that I had been in for months. And I felt so overwhelmed. I remember closing the door, and I went into my room, and I just laid there on the carpet in the middle of the floor, just staring at the ceiling and thinking and feeling overwhelmed. But after a couple moments, I sat up, and I got next to my bed, and I kneeled down, and I prayed. And I said, Lord... I cannot handle this. Please help me. Please help me. Because I had broken up with this guy because I knew it was the right thing to do. In fact, I knew I never should have dated him at all, and I shouldn't have been dating at all, but that's besides the point. And let's face it, oftentimes we create our own problems, do we not? We make poor decisions, and we create our own problems, and that is what I had done. In fact, this was the summer, the fall before, I liked to journal, and I had written in my journal, I will not date so-and-so. And literally, like two weeks later, I ripped the page out of my journal because I didn't want to look at it, and I'd thrown it away because I was now dating so-and-so. I was following my heart, as every Disney chick flick romantic comedy tells us to. We all need to follow our hearts, right? Right? No. <laughs> Side note, what does the Bible say about our hearts? Our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Friends, do not follow your heart. 
Follow the Lord. Give him your heart. He cares about your heart. Follow the Lord. Give him the heart and follow the Lord. But that's besides the point. But I prayed. I knew that God wanted me to live free in him, and so I prayed, and God blessed, and God helped me through those few weeks that were so difficult in the aftermath of that relationship. It was not the best choice I had made, but God worked through it, and he helped me through it when I turned to him. When my heart softened after that time, in time, my heart softened toward him, and he helped me through that, that ending that relationship. And that became a landmark in my experience with the Lord that I could look upon as time went on and I faced different things. I could look back at how God had honored me and helped me through that circumstances. And let me assure you, God understands our weaknesses and our tears. In fact, Scripture tells us that he keeps our tears in a bottle. He remembers them, he notes them, he knows every single one of them. He understands our human frailty and emotion. He knows we are but dust because he's one of us and he gets our emotions and our griefs. He understood when Elijah laid down under a tree and said, Lord, take me now, I'm done, I cannot handle this. God understood. He understood so much that he sent an angel with food and told him to sleep. He understands us. God understood when Peter went weeping into the night, he understood Peter's feelings of grief and failure, and he did not condemn him. He stood waiting for him to come back. He understood when Joseph came face to face with the brothers that had betrayed him and that had caused him so much grief and so much trials over the years. It was so overwhelming for Joseph that he had to leave. He goes into his house and he's weeping so loudly that the entire household staff hears Joseph's cries. That is pain. But God understood and he gave Joseph the courage to go back and face his brothers. God gets it. He understands. And he stands ready and willing to strengthen us. After some rest, God reminded Elijah of who he is assured him that Elijah was not alone and sent him away on the next mission. And later, where does Elijah end up? In a chariot of fire going to heaven. Amazing. God is so merciful to us. God, Jesus reinstates Peter and empowers him to be a tremendous witness for him at the day of Pentecost, literally days later, not very long later. God used Joseph to save nations from famine. God gets us, he gets our reactions, our grief, and he's ready and able to use those situations for far greater purposes than we could ever imagine. I was recently talking to a mom friend, and we we're talking about how to live for the Lord when our worlds are consumed with our children. It's hard to get away. It's hard to spend huge amounts of time studying in prayer. And you may not be in the stage of little children, but life is busy, is it not? The world has a way of jamming so many things into our schedules. And what are we to do? Then this friend pointed me to this verse that really touched my heart. It is Psalms 84. Psalms 84, 2 to 4. Psalms 84. 2 to 4, a psalm of David. Psalm 84, verse 2. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh 
cry out for the living God. Verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. I love these imageries in Psalms, partially because I do love birds. But it's talking how the sparrow and the swallow has a nest by the altar of the Lord. David is speaking as if he's jealous of the birds because they can live closer to the sanctuary than he can. David's desire is to live as close to the Lord as possible. If he could make his home in the sanctuary, he was going to do it. Now, birds are so careful where they select their homes, are they not? Oftentimes, we may not even see their nests until the fall when the leaves have dropped and, oh, that's where they nested that this year. Are we just as careful how we are establishing our homes? Are we intentional about keeping the presence of God a reality in our homes by how we are living? In ancient Israel, the flames of the altar never went out. Those coals were kept burning through the night. For the longest time, the coals of the altar that were lit by God himself with Moses were kept going for years and years, reminders of the direct presence of God. When Israel was encamped in the wilderness, they could look across the camp and see the cloud or the fire just yonder in the distance. It was a constant visual reminder of their identity and the God they served. Have we lost that reality in our lives? I feel this really is the key to all that we've been speaking of. If we live our lives actively aware of the presence of God through the day-to-day muddle of life, when those moments come, the storm, the crises, the injured child, the diagnosis, that dreaded phone call, the accident, when the storm comes and we react, we will know immediately who our strength is because we're living with him day to day. From day to day, living by faith, we will have such an awareness of God's presence with us that we will immediately turn to him. Are our homes by the altar of God? We will know he's right beside us, our help, and we will move forward in faith. When Daniel was faced with the threat of death as an elderly man, his faith did not develop in that moment. His faith had been nurtured by years and years of conscientious devotion to the Lord. So when the most serious trial of his life confronted him, he did what he always did. It wasn't even a thought or a struggle. He kept living by faith. I mentioned Jochebed at the beginning. Her story really struck a nerve with me as I prepared these thoughts. She did not know what would happen when she placed her precious baby in that basket on the river. She did not know. She was able to bring her baby home that day, but her heart must have been heavy, realizing that one day she would have to let her child go with that pagan princess in the palace. So how did she respond? Patriarchs and Prophets says, God had heard the mother's prayers. Her faith had been rewarded. It's with deep gratitude that she entered upon her now safe and happy task. She faithfully improved her opportunity to educate her child for God. She felt confident that he had been preserved for some great work. She had a right premonition. And she knew that he must soon be given up to his royal mother to be surrounded with influences that would tend to lead him away from God. She endeavored to imbue his mind with the fear of God and the love of truth and justice and earnestly prayed that he might be preserved from every corrupting influence. 
a couple points from that quote. Are we surrounded with influences that would tend to lead us away from God? Are we? Absolutely. We don't even have to walk out the doors of our home to have influences through all the technology we have that are the influence that are tending to turn us from God. Jochebed recognized that, and she earnestly prayed that her son would be preserved from those influences. Are we earnestly praying that our families, that we ourselves would be preserved from every corrupting influence? Jochebed's personal crisis rendered her even more faithful than she had been before, and she had been faithful before. It's safe to assume that Jochebed did not live to see Moses lead the Israelites from Egypt. There's no indication that she was. How astonished she will be when she gets to heaven and learns how God used her son. God had a greater purpose. And he always has a greater purpose. Our narrow view of life is so restricted, we have to trust the Lord who sees the end from the beginning. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is a promise. All things work together for good for those who love God. If you love God, he will work out the difficulties in your life. It is a promise. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Trust him, and he promises to see you through. Ellen White phrases this so beautifully as we wrap up. Listen to this. The fact that we are called upon to endure trials shows that the Lord Jesus sees in us something precious, which he desires to develop. If he saw in us nothing whereby he might glorify his name, he would not spend time in refining us. He does not cast worthless stones into his furnace. It is valuable ore that he refines. You are valuable. You are valuable to him. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. Think about that. God never leads his children otherwise they would choose to be led. Did Joseph want to go to Egypt? Absolutely not. He had no desire to go to Egypt as a slave. But Years later, he saw the big picture. I'll quickly read this to you. This is Genesis chapter 50. After Jacob had died, Joseph's brothers come to him, and they are afraid that now is the time that Joseph is going to get his revenge because Father Jacob has died. And so they approach Joseph groveling, if you will. And Joseph says this, Genesis 50, 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, his brothers, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. They sure did mean evil against him. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God had such a greater purpose with, with Joseph. And it's the same with us. We just don't always see it. Last part of this, all that has perplexed us in the providence of God will in the world to come be made plain. The things hard to understand will then find explanation. And there are things that are hard to understand. Why did this have to happen? Why did this loved one die? Why did this happen? It will be revealed 
in time. The mysteries of grace will unfold before us. Where our finite minds discovered only confusion and broken promises, we shall see the most perfect and beautiful harmony. We shall know that infinite love ordered the experiences that seemed most trying. Infinite love. We can trust the Lord. What a God we have. He will see us through. How many of you need the Lord in your life to deal with the trials that we go through? Absolutely. You may be worrying about something today. You may be in the midst of something today. You might be worrying about the future. You could be struggling with your children. You may be struggling with a spouse or a relationship that you are in. God knows. He understands. He sees. And he stands ready to see you through. He promises that he's with you, and he promises that it will turn out for good if you trust in him. Commit afresh to him, and commitment oftentimes takes action. Do you have corrupting influences in your life? Do you have things you know you need to cut out? Cut them out. Make the hard choices. Follow your convictions, and the Lord will bless you. Is there anything between you and him today? Is his presence really in your home? Are you making your home by the altar? If you are and you are committed to him, he will see you through whatever Satan throws at you, whatever you have to work through. He will work it out. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our God, that you see the end from the beginning, because we don't, Lord, and we do not always understand. Sometimes we know it's our poor choices that create the situations that we are in, but other times we don't understand and we struggle. We thank you that you became human and that you can relate to our hearts. You understand us, Lord but we are thankful that you are God and that you give us the strength to get through whatever the world and Satan throws at us. Lord, give us patience, give us humility and heart, and give us your strength, Lord, because we want to be your witnesses. We want to point others to you. We thank you, Father, that you love us so much, that you are with us and you are next to us each and every day. We praise you. We thank you that you are holy and you hear us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.